So welcome. We are tonight going to continue our conversation about the spiritual world, and we're going to focus on um, uh, demons and the Satan. Actually, not in that order. We're going to do the Satan and the demons. Uh, and just as a reminder, next week is our last week, and we're going to talk about uh, Jesus and a renewed humanity. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, so um, don't miss that one. Um, quickly, 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 reminding you what we've done so far. So we began by talking about the creation of the spiritual and the physical worlds in Scripture. And we talked about how the, uh, the stars represented the spiritual beings. And, of course, we are the physical beings. We talked a lot about the Hebrew word Elohim, which means spiritual beings, most often translated as the spiritual being, God, but sometimes can mean other things. Uh, and then we talked about um, how God's design was for the spiritual world and the physical world to overlap. And that happened in Eden, that happened in the temple, most significantly in Christ, but was designed also to happen in us. Uh, and then we talked about, and we're going to revisit this tonight, a little bit about the dual rebellions, the spiritual and physical rebellions against God. Okay, that required a dual king. Last week, we talked about the Elohim that were faithful to Elohim, right? So the spiritual beings that stayed faithful to God. And we talked about four categories, the divine council, the cherubim, the angels, and the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh. Okay, uh, we're going to get into some of that again tonight as we think about um, the, the unfaithful spiritual beings. Uh, but just a quick recap. Uh, we talked about the divine council as um, the community of spiritual beings around God that he sometimes consults and sometimes talks to and probably includes angels and cherubim and whatever else, but also represented by, for example, the 24 elders in Revelation that sit on thrones around the throne of God. We talked about cherubim. Uh, cherubim have wings, right? And they um, look like a, a, a mix of all the different kinds of things that God has made. And they guard the presence of God. And in some way, they seem to embody the hope of the physical and spiritual kind of coming together. And we talked about angels. Angels, we discovered, do not have wings. We also talked about angels being God's messengers. And then we talked about the angel of the Lord, who is a unique figure in Scripture. Um, sometimes the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh sounds like an angel. And sometimes it sounds like it is Yahweh, but it is the Lord. Uh, and we mentioned a few of those Scripture passages where those titles are used interchangeably. Right? The angel of the Lord does something, and then Yahweh does something. We're talking about the same event. Okay, so that's where we were last week. Tonight, we're going to talk about the unfaithful Elohim, right? the spiritual beings that were not faithful to God. Uh, and so really going to talk about three big ideas, um, the Satan, demons, and we're going to revisit our conversation about rebel uh, rebellion against God, Okay. So um, as I've said several times, I am immensely indebted to the wonderful folks at the Bible Project, uh, and especially for these great little videos they made on these topics. So we're going to watch uh, some of that again tonight, and we're going to begin by talking about this figure we call the Satan, and pay attention to what might be new to you as we talk about um, the evil one. So we've been learning about spiritual beings in the Bible. And I still have a lot of questions about the battle. Let's talk about the Satan and demons in the story of the Bible. So let's start in the beginning. 
in Genesis 1, God creates a beautiful, ordered reality out of darkness disorder so that light can flourish. He appoints humans as his representatives to rule over all of it, and seven times God calls it good. Yeah, I experience that kind of goodness often in things like beauty and truth, love and generosity. But in Genesis 3, we meet a creature who's in a state of rebellion against his creator. We're not told yet why or how he rebels, but he's on a mission to ruin God's good world for other this thing is struggle. Yeah, this creature is the Bible's first portrait of evil. It distorts what God has purposed for good, ruining and dragging creation back into darkness and disorder. So the humans join the spiritual world, which leads them back into chaos and death. And from this point on, the human rebellion is interwoven with a spiritual rebellion. And the biblical story shows how this happens over and over again. Okay, but wait. We're getting all this from a slithering snake? Well, there are clues in the story that it's more than just a snake. Remember, Eden is a high place where the earth and its creatures overlap with heaven and its creatures. So the snake could be a spiritual being. Well, Genesis 3 points in that direction, and then later biblical authors fill in the picture. Like when the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, he's surrounded and being praised by spiritual beings. It is the cherubim. But when Isaiah sees these creatures, he describes them as seraphim, which in Hebrew means snake. Awesome snake is like a former staff member of God's throne. So why is he talking to the humans? Well, the prophet Ezekiel understood this figure as a spiritual devil who didn't want to live under God's wisdom and authority. He wanted to be God. All right, that's the same temptation the snake puts before Adam. Exactly. He says they could rule the world like God, but by their own wisdom. So they're all kicked out of the garden. Yeah, God says this rebel will not fall down. Where does it go after this? Well, the biblical authors offer subtle clues where this being is at work behind the scenes, animating division and hatred between humans. They also use a variety of images to describe this being. It's a snake, or a sea dragon, or a dark desert creature, or the king of death in the grave. He's also given many titles, like tempter, or the evil one, or the devil, which in Greek means the slanderer. But his name is Satan, right? Actually, no. Satan is not a name. It's another one of these titles, which is why in Hebrew it has the word the in front of it. The Satan means the adversary. Because he isn't for anything, rather he's anti-everything, working through lies to drag us back into darkness and disorder. That's intense. Okay. Uh, so, before we get to all of it, um, what did you hear you didn't know before? Anything that was different or unusual or strange? Ah, Satan is not a name. Okay, we're going to spend some time talking about that in a minute. That's good. What else stood out to you? Bob? Yeah, okay. Great. Satan being a part of the heavenly realm, not the earthly realm. Okay, that's big. We're going to talk about that too. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. So in Job, uh, Satan has a whole conversation with God, right? Absolutely. Sure he does. Yeah. To chapter one and again in chapter two. Yeah. That's right. 
Okay, awesome. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk about uh, this figure the Bible calls the Satan in two ways. I want to talk about his history, and then I want to talk about his names. And I think they're both going to help us understand more of who this figure is. Okay, so let's start with the history, uh, and let's begin with Genesis chapter 3. So this is a familiar story. This is the story of the serpent in the garden. Um, and I just want to point out something that um, maybe you've noticed before and, and, and been confused by. So we, we know immediately the serpent is unlike the other things that God has made, right? First of all, chapter 3, verse 1 says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made, right? So immediately we're told he's different. Um, does that mean he is not a wild animal, right? More crafty than all the wild animals God has made because he's not a wild animal at all or just the best of the best, we don't know, but he's unique. Uh, and then he starts talking, which is not something that most serpents do. Anybody ever seen a snake? Anybody ever seen a talking snake? Okay. What's that? Oh, okay. What? Right, you don't stay around. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't stick around to ask any questions either. Yeah, okay. Um, so, so the snake shows up. Um, remember what the snake does. So this is uh, Genesis chapter three, verse, um, well, just do the whole thing. Verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. God didn't say the nor shall you touch it part, by the way, she added that. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its food and ate and she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Okay, what's the temptation? Why are they, why are they tempted to eat this fruit? Is it because they're hungry? No, why are they tempted to eat the fruit? To be like God. Okay, fantastic. So um, I think we can infer that the temptation that Satan gives to Adam and Eve is the same one that he himself has subscribed to, right? Just as Satan tempts us to be like God, so too he wants to be like God, right? He wants to be the all-powerful one, the worshipped one. Um, so he's trying to find a way to attain that just as Adam and Eve start trying to find that way, okay? Now, we know what happens. We know that their eyes are opened. We know the Lord comes. The Lord finds them. He asks what happened. Um, then something really interesting happens. This is uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate. Now, pause there for a minute. That's going to be really important. And later on, if I don't remember to do this, somebody asked me, um, but there's a distinction between the fallen humanity and the fallen Elohim. And it's right there in that verse. Okay, we'll come back to it. Then the Lord God, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Okay, um, some of that is great. That curse of the serpent. Okay, we know that 
There's enmity between snakes and people. We know that actually the, the Hebrew word is a singular word, your offspring singular. So we interpret that to mean Jesus, right? That Jesus will be his enemy and Jesus will crush his head. Um, but some of that is really weird. What, what's weird about the curse on the serpent? Let me read it again. I'll just read the first verse. Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. What's weird about that? Yeah, Terry. He's going to slither in the dust. Okay. Why is that weird? It's, yeah, Stephanie. Yes! What was the snake? Have you, how many, okay, again, hands of people who've seen snakes. Um, you, you, but, but you don't say around. But, you, but they're on the ground already, right? So what kind of snake was this that he wasn't slithering on the ground until God cursed him? Yeah, it's a walking snake or a flying snake. It's a snake with wings, right? So that's why, so I, I feel like I didn't give the full story, but several people asked me last week, what about seraphim? Okay, so we were talking about the cherubim last week, the, the beings that are close to God. What's next on my thing here? Oh yeah, that's good, okay. Um, and uh, several people asked me, what about the seraphim? Because in Isaiah chapter six, the only place in the whole Bible, Isaiah chapter six, we get a vision of um, God exalted in his temple and there are these beings with six wings covering their eyes and their feet and flying and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Okay. And they sound just like cherubim, right? Because cherubim have wings and stand close to God. And in, I, I'm sorry, in the book of Revelation, chapter four, there are four living beings who are described like cherubim, right? With the crazy different animal faces. Um, but they have six wings like the seraphim. And they're singing the same song that the seraphim are singing, right? So most people like me read that and say, okay, they're all the same thing, right? Cherubim, seraphim, same deal. Um, but um, this is a really interesting point. The word seraphim literally means fiery serpent or venomous serpent. And you can see how fiery and venomous might be similar ideas, right? It bites you, it feels like fire. Um, so I don't know why. In Isaiah chapter six, we have always translated the word, uh, left the word untranslated. I mean, mo usually we translate Hebrew words and English words, but seraphim is a Hebrew word. I don't know why we don't just say venomous snakes were flying around God, except that that sounds weird, right? So um, as I understand this, we're being told that Satan was a cherubim, Okay, Satan was one of those cherubim, seraphim kind of things with the wings that stand close to God, that sing his praises, that guard his presence, like a really big deal. Okay, uh, and, and Satan falls, and then um, ultimately he's a flying serpent in Eden until God casts him to the ground. Okay, um, there's a really interesting verse in the 20, yeah, the 28th chapter of the prophet Ezekiel. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses of it. I encourage you to read it more later on your own if you want. Um, but in, in Ezekiel 28, the prophet's talking about the king of Tyre. Tyre is a, a coastal city uh, to the northwest of Israel, right? And a major city in the time of, of Ezekiel. And he's talking about how much he doesn't like, how God doesn't like their king, right? The king is evil, okay? But then we get a really interesting metaphor that shows up in Ezekiel chapter 28, okay? And so verse 11, 
the word of the Lord came to me, mortal, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. And here comes the metaphor. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Okay, verse 14. Now, if you're in the NRSV, this is going to sound weird. Um, the NRSV says, with an anointed cherub as guardian, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked upon the stones of fire. Um, the, the Hebrew there doesn't say, well, it's a little bit confusing. It's lacking a verb. So you've got four nouns. Um, but it, most people translate this differently than the NRSV. And they say, you were an anointed cherub. I placed in the garden. Okay. Uh, and then um, verse 16, um, I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And the guardian cherub drove you out from among the stones of fire. Again, most translations are going to say, um, I cast you out, guardian cherub, from among the stones of fire. So we get this language that there was a cherub, like a cherubim, in the Garden of Eden, who God cast out. Well, boy, that sure sounds like the serpent, doesn't it? Okay, so um, we're, we're getting this idea uh, that this figure in the Garden of Eden isn't just a snake, right? It's this divine, uh, and, and divine in the sense of Elohim, spiritual being called a cherubim, um, a very significant cherubim that um, went rogue and wanted to be God and tried to get us to want to be God and succeeded a little bit, right? And started this rebellion. Are we together? Okay. Um, so I just said that. Uh, there's, a, there's a story in Revelation chapter 12 that's really significant as we think about this. And um, Revelation is a challenging book for many reasons. Um, but one of the reasons is um, it is a vision, right? And so visions are metaphorical and they're not always linear. It's not always the case that one thing happens chronologically after the next thing. But, but chapter 12 describes a war that took place in heaven, okay? And uh, I'm just going to read you a little bit of this. We're going to come back to chapter 12 later. But chapter 12, verse 7 says, War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, so there are two ways the church has traditionally read this story. This is not an end of the world story. Okay, so this is not like the end times. Some people read this as um, part of the salvation act of Jesus Christ, right? As Jesus defeats sin and death, this war happens, right? Other people, I think the more common reading is that this happens before um, the garden, right? That there is some sort of um, conflict in heaven between the Elohim and Satan, one of the Elohim, one of the cherubim, and those who are allied with him um, get into a fight and they lose and they get thrown out of town, okay? Um, I want you to notice who's fighting. Who, one side is, is Satan and his angels. Who's on the other side? Did you notice? Michael. Okay. It's not God. Why not? Would it be a fair fight if God fought Satan? 
It would not. It would be a very short battle, right? Um, so Satan is not the opposite of God, right? Satan is the opposite of Michael. Satan is, the, is, a, is a fallen angel. And so, sure, angels can battle him and they're going to win because they've got God on their side. Um, if God fought him, it would be, you know, over in a snap of his fingers. Um, okay, so um, we get the sense that um, after Genesis 3 and after this um, sort of being cast out of heaven, um, Satan is primarily an invisible presence drawing creation away from its creator. I say primarily because he shows up sometimes in scripture, right? But primarily, he's an invisible presence drawing creation away from its creator, a personified invisible presence, okay? Um, and I just said that, okay. Um, however, he's, he's not the opposite of God, the opposite of Michael. He is, he is pretty powerful, right? And um, we'll talk about this later, but you know, we're, these spiritual beings have more going for them than you and I do, right? So he's, he's got some clout. All right, um, th this is a really big idea for me, and, I, and it's interesting that we get it right in Genesis chapter 3. Um, I think this is true for everybody, right? We are less without God than we are with God. But I think it's uniquely true for spiritual beings, okay? So um, your physicality may not change whether you are following Jesus or not, right? So you're not necessarily going to have better health if you're following Jesus or worse health if you don't. Um, but your spirit is very much affected. Well, what if you were only spirit? Well, then I think you'd be very much affected in every way if you were with God or against God, right? So um, I read this story, especially Genesis chapter three, when the, when the serpent loses the ability to fly, right? Um, as telling us that, you know, these Elohim opposed to God are significantly less than they used to be when they were allied with God. Okay? And that's going to be significant as we go and talk about demons as well. Um, but here I would simply say, you know, I'm not saying they're, they're not powerful, but boy, they're a lot less powerful than they were. Right? And we get that image of Satan being cast out of heaven or the image of Satan losing the ability to fly as a seraphim becoming a serpent as a metaphor of saying, boy, without God, you've got a lot less going for you. Okay. Are we together so far? All right. Um, I want to talk about names real quick. So, uh, oh, no, stop, go back. Okay, sorry, I was going to ask you first. Uh, what are some names for Satan or some titles for Satan? What do, what do we sometimes call him? Anything come to mind? The devil, great. What else? The deceiver, what's that? Okay, Beelzebub comes up in scripture, yep, uh-huh. The opponent, yep, the opponent, great. Father of lies, fantastic. It's weird to be encouraging you as you're saying all these horrible things, but, but I'm just saying the right answers. Yeah, okay. Yeah. What's that? It's the serpent. Yep, we call him the serpent. Yep. What's that? Beast. Okay, the beast. Okay, good. Yeah. Lucifer. Excellent. What's that? A third one more. Great. Okay, fantastic. So um, all of those are correct, right? All of those are titles that scripture uses to talk about this figure that we often call Satan. Um, uh, just for fun, I listed a few, um, and I, I'm not going through all these now. Uh, but if you get bored later, they're in your handout, right? So you can look them up uh, to see some of these places where some of those titles show up in scripture, okay? Um, what I wanted to point out was that all of those are titles, 
right? So the tempter, the enemy, the father of lies, the evil one, the devil, the Satan, they're all titles, okay? Um, the two most famous titles are the devil and Satan. We heard them both in Revelation chapter 12, right? So the devil is a Greek word, diablos, and it means slanderer, okay? So like someone who speaks falsely about someone else. Um, significantly, there are many people called slanderers or diablos in scripture that are not the devil. They're not spiritual beings. So for example, um, there's a verse, First Timothy, uh, First Timothy chapter three, verse 11 says that women in the church should not be slanderers, right? And it says literally they should not be diablos. Okay. So diablos can refer to anybody that is slandering someone, um, but when we see the Diablos, right, ho Diablos, um, then we usually assume that means the slanderer, right, or the devil. Are we together? Okay. Uh, same thing with the name Satan, right? So in Hebrew, um, the word Satan means accuser or adversary or opponent. It's almost a legal term, right? So there are places in scripture where you're supposed to get an adversary to come up in a court case to go against you. Or um, there's a place in 1 Kings, it's uh, chapter 11, verse 14, where Solomon is wandering away from faithfulness to God and God raises up some adversaries for him. One of them is this guy named Hadad, who's an Edomite, right? He's clearly not Satan. He's just a political opponent. Sometimes um, an adversary can be good. So for example, in the story of, remember Balaam and the donkey? Um, Balaam has a talking donkey. Anyway, um, there's a point where it says the Lord God was angry with Balaam and he sent the angel of Yahweh, remember, which is like the embodiment of Yahweh to be his Satan, right? To be the adversary to Balaam. The, the Hebrew word is the Satan to Balaam, okay? Um, or actually it doesn't say it, it says to be a Satan to Balaam, sorry. Um, so when we see a Satan, it can mean anything. When we see the Satan, um, we usually translate it with a capital S to refer to this particular figure. And actually in the Old Testament, the phrase the Satan only shows up in three scriptures. Okay, so it shows up, did I list them for you? I did. So it shows up in 1 Chronicles 21, where David is enticed by Satan to count his army. It shows up in Job, like Mike mentioned earlier, in sort of the divine council meeting, Satan talks to God about Job. And it shows up in Zechariah chapter three, and where there's a really interesting conversation between, um, I think it's Michael and uh, Satan, actually. It's either Michael or the angel of the Lord. Anyway, one or the other. Um, you can look up on your own later and find out and tell me. Uh, so those are the only three places that the Satan name shows up. But as our authors mentioned, the figure shows up many places, like the serpent, many places in scripture. Um, these titles are designed to help us understand the role of Satan, like what this figure does, okay? So um, this figure is an accuser. Right? He stands before God and says, look, I know you think Job is an upstanding guy, but actually that's just because you've been nice to him. If you stop being nice to him, you'll discover he's actually a horrible person on the inside. And God says, I don't believe you and I can prove it, right? And he does, and God's right. But Satan accuses. Right? Satan stands before God and accuses us and says, hey, uh, Jim Gates deserves to go to hell with me because let me tell you all the horrible things Jim Gates has done. 
Uh, and so um, he's an accuser. He's an adversary, right? He, he's not, I love the way our video said, he's not for anything. He's against everything. Maybe he's for himself, right? He's for trying to be like God. Um, but since everything that is, is from God, he's against all of it, right? He hates sunrises and he hates truth and he hates flowers and he hates babies, right? He hates everything that's from God. Um, uh, he's a tempter. He's an enemy. He's the evil one. He's the father of lies. All that stuff. He's the slanderer, right? He lies all the time. He, he lies about um, what happens if you eat the fruit of the tree, right? And he lies about whether God loves us or not. And he, and he just, just lies and lies and lies and lies. He's the father of lies. Um, so all of those titles are designed to help us get our heads around what this guy does. Are, are we together? Okay. Um, perfectly okay to keep calling him Satan or the devil, right? Just know that what those mean. Okay. Uh, one last thing. Uh, I, I, I mentioned this, but I just wanted this briefly. So what does he do? I, I just said this. He, he tempts, he lies, he slanders, he accuses, he murders. Jesus talks about him as um, the, a murderer since from the beginning, right? Because he wanted to kill creation. And he tried to kill Adam and Eve by giving them to eat the fruit. Um, he works in the background to sow uh, discontent and disconnect between creation and its creator. Uh, and he has significant power over nations and kingdoms. And this is, I think, meaningful. So remember in the Gospels, Jesus, at least in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus, right after his baptism, is taken into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And there he's tempted for 40 days, right? And Satan shows up. And in Matthew and Luke, Satan offers Jesus all the kingdom of the world if Jesus will worship him. Jesus doesn't say, don't be stupid. You can't do that. Jesus says, you know, get away from me, Satan, for as written, you shall worship the Lord your God and the Lord alone. The implication is Satan can do exactly what he's saying. Satan could deliver every kingdom on earth to Jesus if Jesus would just worship him. Okay, so uh, the implication here, and this, uh, we'd spend more time, but this kind of me uh, meshes with the rest of scripture, is that um, Satan has some significant political clout over kingdoms on earth. Uh, and, and you see this, uh, particularly in the book of Daniel, for example, there's these conversations about the princes over different kingdoms. And our prince, Israel's prince, is a guy named Michael, right? The archangel Michael. Uh, but then there are other princes of other kingdoms that Michael is fighting against. Those are spiritual beings ruling other kingdoms or pulling the strings for other kings. Okay. All right. Um, so I, I mentioned this because um, Satan often works on a macro level, uh, at least in, in the stories of scripture that we get, right? Obviously he gives Jesus personal attention. We understand why, but everybody else, Satan works seemingly on a kind of a macro level, right? He's trying to make everything bad, right? So, you know, Satan's not going to get one person enslaved. He's going to create slavery, right? Satan's not going to kill one person. He's going to say, hey, let's do a Holocaust and kill six million. Are, are we together? So, so um, in general, it seems like he's, he's got a big picture view of how to maximize suffering, okay? Um, but he has some helpers and his helpers can get a little more personal. Uh, and, and those are his angels. That's what they were called in Revelation chapter 12, right? The dragon and his angels. Um, so we're gonna watch, I'm sorry, let me pause there. 
Uh, questions about Satan before we get into the demons? Yeah, Jim. So was was Satan a serpent or a reptile in heaven? Well, I think he was. I think it was a seraphim slash cherubim. I think they're the same thing. And so, yes, in that sense, he was a cherubim. He was a seraphim in heaven. Um, and they are described, at least in Isaiah, as, as flying fiery serpents. He did. We're going to read that passage in just a minute in Revelation chapter 12. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So what, what he had in the garden? I think we're supposed to infer that the person, I'm repeating what you said, that the personification he had in, in the garden as a serpent was akin to the personification in heaven as a seraphim. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, for me, finally makes sense of what the heck that God was cursing him to crawl. Of course he was crawling as a snake. Ah, he wasn't crawling. He was a flying snake. Yes, right. So, and, and, and we're going to come to this in a minute, but it's a really good point. So Jim said, we can infer that the spirit can take many forms. So um, we're going to come back to this, but I think part of the reality of becoming less without God is that when the spiritual beings move away from God, they, this, is, this isn't like a certain thing. This is my reading of it, that it becomes harder and harder for them to take physical form. Satan seems to be able to do it. Um, but I don't know how many of the other ones can. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Chip, uh, Bob. Okay, so the question is, can Satan be omniscient or omnipresent like God can? Uh, so I don't know the answer to that because I, I don't know what sort of rules apply to spiritual beings. So I don't know if you know, all spiritual beings exists a little bit outside of time, or if only the ones allied with God do, or if only God does and the rest of the spiritual beings exist inside of time, they are created, right? So there's a point where there are no spiritual beings except for, you know, Yahweh, and then he makes the rest of them. So that suggests they have a beginning, which suggests to me they exist in time a little bit, but I don't really know the answer to that. Um, so I don't know, you know, how much Satan knows or doesn't know. Yeah. Uh, again, all I know is it's less than God knows. Um, and, and we get some pretty clear indications of that. For example, the fact that Satan um, goes ahead and tries to kill Jesus, well, does kill Jesus. If he'd understood what was going to come, he would not have done that. But clearly he's not all-knowing. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, we're going to keep rolling. So we're going to talk a little bit about the, the, uh, the demons. What about these other spiritual levels of Bible What are they all about? Okay, so remember the concept of God's having the staff to the divine council or the sons of God. In the Hebrew scriptures, we're told that some of these rebelled too. When did that multiple times actually? After the snake comes the rebellion of the sons of God in Genesis 6. We're told that they have sex with women who then give birth to violent glories. Right. Definitely. These are probably the strangest characters in the Bible. Well, strange from your point of view. The ancient readers knew exactly what was going on. The ancient kingdoms around Israel claimed to be founded and protected by giant warrior families. 
So we're part human, part God, and filled with divine wisdom. Guys, it's a biblical author who said, okay, those warrior kings, they shouldn't be on. Right. In this story, they're portrayed as human rebels who are captive spiritually, spreading their violence in God's visual. Then one of those kings in Genesis 10 goes on to build the city of Babylon. Yes, Nimrod, whose name sounds like the Hebrew word for Babylon. And his kingdom leads to the next development where humans exalt themselves in Babylon, for God scattered to Babylon. And when Moses in Deuteronomy looks back at that story, he says that's the moment when God handed over the nations to worship the rebel host of heaven, the gods of money, sex, and military power. Moses is the first one to call them demons, that is, lesser spiritual beings. So demons are spiritual forces that work on a corrupt human power structures. Yes, but the Bible, they also work on the personal level, animating and exploiting humanity's greed and selfishness, as well as the weakness of our mortal bodies. In the Bible, spiritual evil is at work in anything that drags God's good creation back into chaos, darkness, and death. So, this is why when Jesus writes, he says, the primary thing is not evil. Right. Jesus and his first followers viewed all the pain and suffering in God's good world as a sign of its captivity to death and spiritual evil. But they didn't think this was the end of the story. Right. Jesus knew that the only way out of this cosmic room is to overcome evil and death itself, even if it costs them. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about demons. Um, so we just heard demons are... Um, fallen council members, right? The sort of angelic <laughs> beings that used to be up there with God, Elohim, that were with God that sort of fall out of, um, out of his kingdom. Uh, Jim mentioned earlier um, that a quote from Revelation chapter 12. So we read a little bit of that before, but I'm going to go back to that chapter, okay? In Revelation chapter 12, um, we're told a little bit earlier than we read before in verse 3. Um, no, let me explain what's going on. So in chapter 12, there are these signs in heaven that John sees in his vision, right? So John looks up and in the skies, he sees these signs, right? And one sign is a woman um, who represents Israel or the church, right? With the sun, the moon, and 12 stars. And she's having a baby. Um, and then another sign, verse three, another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Okay. And then we already read the part about the war of heaven and the angel and the dragon and blah, blah. So um, we often read that and say, well, it sure sounds like we're hearing that about a third of the Elohim rebelled. Right? That there are a whole bunch of these fallen spirits. Uh, and we're going to hear about those fallen spirits many places in scripture. Um, the first place they show up is in Genesis chapter 6. And this is actually a significant passage for a couple of reasons. Now, I've said this before, but as I read Genesis 1 through 11, right, I read them as really critical theology for us. Not necessarily history, but theology for us, okay? So Genesis 6 is one of those super weird stories that we just heard them mention where um, human women and Elohim have sex and have children, okay? So 
When the people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, the word Hebrew is Elohim, the Elohim saw that they were fair and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Now, the implication here is that they still have, they can take physical form, right? Like an angel can take physical form. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and, often, and also afterward when the Elohim went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of humankind was great on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Okay, so couple of things. Um, first, I think we're, we're getting another story like the story in Revelation of the fall of those Elohim, right? This is where they go wrong. Um, and we're getting this idea of these sort of hybrids, right? Part um, human, part spiritual being. This is not a unique idea in the Jewish faith, right? You ever heard of Hercules, Theseus, right? All of those guys were called demigods. Why? Because they had a human parent and a divine parent. Okay? Very common idea in the ancient world. What's unique about this story is that they don't have a God as a parent who is like equivalent to other gods, but they have an Elohim, right? A spiritual being. All the time in ancient history, people would claim to be demigods, right? Like every Roman emperor ever claimed to be a demigod. Oh yeah, my dad was Hermes. My dad was Apollo. My dad, you know, my mom was um, Demeter, whatever. Right? Obviously it was, we think it was pretty much nonsense, right? But the idea was I have some credibility because I'm part God. So here we have this idea that these, these rebellious human leaders who like the Roman emperors and like so many other political leaders over time were setting themselves up as gods, right, in opposition to God, um, that there is a spiritual component to their evil rule, right? It's not just that they're bad people, right? But that there, is, uh, there are spiritual forces helping them be bad, okay? Um, uh, I would have to read this again, but we read this a couple weeks ago in Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is the, the verse they mentioned, um, where Moses says, you stopped worshiping me and you started worshiping gods you didn't know who are no gods but demons. Right? Um, we, we see this throughout scripture. And I think one of the most powerful places we see it is in the book of Exodus. So um, Exodus chapter 12 has a really interesting line where um, Yahweh is speaking to Moses and letting him know what's going to come. And he's getting him ready, particularly for the Passover, right? The, the ultimate event of their salvation. And the Lord says, um, uh, where's, where's verse 12? Oh, right after verse 11. Okay. Um, uh, the, the Lord says, uh, essentially, I've done all this work, right? I've done all this thing to get ready. But now I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals, on all the Elohim of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. Okay? So, could not be more clear that God sees humans and spiritual beings 
allied against him and he's going to defeat them all, right? Pharaoh is not working on his own. By the way, we've talked about this before, but as you look at all of the plagues, most of the plagues are targeted against a particular Egyptian deity, right? So the first plague turns the Nile to blood and the Nile was an Egyptian deity called, I forgot what the name of it is called, Happy, maybe? I don't remember. Uh, and then the second one is that there's all those frogs come up into the land, right? And the Egyptian deity for fertility had a frog's head. And so God's like, well, let me show you what it looks like when fertility goes crazy, right? And he brings up all the frogs. Ra, the sun god, right? Uh, and then God blocks out the sun. Pharaoh is a god, so God kills Pharaoh's son, right? So you, it's not just about the physical people, right? It's about, I'm going to defeat these Elohim. Okay. Um, so we get this... Uh, we get this idea that the, the lesser demons have two roles. Like Satan, they can have the big national perspective. They can say, hey, I'm going to make the king of Babylon be really horrible. Or they can have a very personal perspective. Remember the story of Cain and Abel. It's a really interesting line there where it says, where God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your, your door. It desires um, to, to get you, but you must master it, right? It's personified sin. Well, that's, maybe that's an Elohim. Right? Um, certainly we get the personified, I'm sorry, the, the personal level Elohim in the New Testament. Right? So in the New Testament, um, we have possessions and oppressions of individual people. It's not the case that we're done with, with fallen Elohim affecting things on national levels, but they are also affecting things on individual levels, right? And individual people. Okay. Um, how are we doing? Okay. Yeah, let me, let me pause here for a second. Is it, is it making a little bit of sense? How are we doing? Are you tracking? We're going to talk. Yeah, Bob. Yes. Yes. So, no. Okay. Uh, good, really good question. The question is, what does Nephilim mean? Um, so it, it seems like Nephilim means sort of spiritual, um, physical hybrids that are these like great warrior heroes that claim like demigods in the Greco-Roman mythology. Um, there's a longer conversation to be had here about Nephilim. And there are some who think, and, and, and I think the Bible Project guides would probably make this argument, that they might ultimately constitute like an even lesser version of bad spirits. That sometimes when the Bible talks about evil spirits, it might not be full-powered Elohim, but sort of these lesser, weaker versions. I don't, there's a lot of conjecture involved in that. Um, so all I would say is the Bible talks about Nephilim multiple times as giant men who are great warriors who lead kingdoms, like Nimrod, right? Um, and they do show up several other times, even in the, the rest of the Old Testament, the, obviously the regular Old Testament, um, we get stories of, you know, they were descendants of the Nephilim. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about possession. That's fun. Um, so three ideas about uh, possession, oppression, and exorcism that are important for us, okay? Um, we're not going to read all these scriptures, but I just want to um, explain the idea. So possession in scripture um, primarily occurs in the New Testament. We don't get a lot of this in the Old Testament. And it is when a spiritual being, an Elohim, 
takes over somebody's body. Okay, so the, the example I gave you in Mark chapter five is um, this guy that's living in the tombs in the land of the Gerardines, sometimes the Gerasenes, depending on your gospel. And he is like crazy. He's running around naked. They tie him up, but he can break the chain. So he has some supernatural strength. And when Jesus meets him and says, who are you? He says, we are legion, right? Which legion, of course, is a Roman military group. But the point is, there's lots of stuff running around in that guy's head, okay? Um, Jesus casts the, the demons, plural, out of him into a herd of pigs. And the pigs rush down the stupid back end and they drown in the, in the sea, right? which is a visual way of showing us that what was in him has come out of him and gone somewhere else. Right? So... Um, in that situation, this is not by any means the only time it happens in the New Testament. Um, we have somebody who has lost some of their personal agency because of these Elohim that are abiding in them. Um, one of the reasons that I say, and I, again, this is just my conjecture, I could be wrong, that the spiritual forces of evil don't take physical form, is that they don't ever do it in the New Testament. Right? So in the New Testament, um, there's never a demon walking around by himself. They're like parasites, right? And they live off of other people and other things. So I'm not saying they can't live without us. I'm saying, you know, I, I don't believe in boogeyman and ghosts and monsters are going to come up with Freddy Krueger or whatever, right? That's, that's Hollywood nonsense. Um, but in the scriptures, they can be sort of parasites to us, okay? Um, I, my, again, my opinion is they don't have physical form because they've become less, Angels can take physical form. They do it all the time, right? But demons are less than angels now because they're separate from God. And so they can't do that. Yeah, Terry. Yeah, does that mean you cannot see them? I think yes. Um, so I, I think you could, you could be sitting in your room and an angel could show up and start talking to you. But I don't think that works that way with demons. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Um, I, I, I think an, a demon can be in someone. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, the next question is, who can a demon be in? Uh, so Matthew, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about this. And it's really helpful because it gives us some comfort in this as believers. So in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, in the 12th chapter, uh, casts the demon out of a guy. And the Pharisees are all like, oh, you're doing that by Beelzebub right? You're casting out demons by the power of other demons. And Jesus is like, you guys are all stupid. And then he says, uh, I'm not doing it by Beelzebub. Uh, you know, I'm doing it by the power of God. Uh, and then he says, you can't take something from a strong man unless first you tie him up, right? So the image is, um, if you break into somebody's house and try to take their, I don't know, PlayStation 5, and there's a strong person, they're going to be like, no, you can't. And they're going to beat you down, right? Unless you're strong enough to overpower them. Jesus is saying, I am going in, I am overpowering Satan, and I am taking people out of his kingdom, right? Um, I'm stronger than him. I'm rescuing people. And then in the same chapter later on, Jesus says, what happens if a demon leaves a person, wanders around, finds some friends, and comes back and sees that person is empty, like an empty house, right? Is well, he's going to get his friends and move in, and the final state of that person is worse than the first, right? The implication being, your house can be empty or it can be full. How do you make it full? You bring Jesus in, 
right? If Jesus is in your house, there's no room for Satan, right? Christians cannot be possessed, period, full stop in the story, right? The Holy Spirit lives inside you. Satan can't handle that, okay? So if you're a believer, completely impossible for you to be possessed. Nice to know. Um, however, there's one other thing that, ha- that demons do to individuals in scripture, and that is oppression. Jeepers. Okay. Um, uh, I, I have a citation here about a story of a woman who was bent over double for like 18 years, right? So she is physically like this, and Jesus heals her again on a Sabbath. Um, but he doesn't say she has a physical ailment. He says, Satan has tied her up for these 18 years. So um, Jesus understands this as an exorcism, right? He is casting out the power of darkness, the power of Satan, one of these fallen Elohim, and physically lifting her up. Had she lost her free will? No, she had not. Had she lost her identity? No, she had not. Was she disconnected from God? No, she was not. But she was physically oppressed. Are we together? So um, the good news is Christians cannot be possessed. The bad news is we can be oppressed, right? Bad things can happen to us. And sometimes those bad things just happen because bad things happen in the world. But sometimes they happen because Satan has a desire to drive all creation away from God and remove all goodness. He's opposed to everything, okay? Um, Before you ask, can I tell the difference between an oppression and just bad stuff happening? I cannot, right? I cannot. Um, but that's kind of part of the point, right? That, that we make a false distinction if we think that we can always tell what things are merely physical and what things are, are, are purely spiritual. Because this whole story has been the physical and the spiritual are all mingled up together. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, and then um, uh, we don't have time to do that. We'll talk about that next time. Um, but Jesus does a lot of exorcisms, Okay. We'll talk about next time why that's so important. But in a nutshell, as I think they said earlier, Jesus understands a primary function of his ministry is to defeat spiritual forces of evil. So he does individual exorcisms to show how he's doing that on a small level, but he's going to do it on the same cosmic level, um, even bigger than the level that Satan is playing on, right? Okay. Um, And can we do exorcisms today? I don't have time to talk about that. but, but I will say two, two quick things about that. I'll, I'll, I'll say, um, uh, I want to talk about next time. And there's more than one level of exorcism, okay? So, the, you know, you've seen the movie, The Exorcist, where you're trying to get like the, that's one thing, right? Um, but Paul and, and Jesus are pretty clear that part of our work is to pray against evil forces, right? To pray that God's reign and spirit comes, to pray for justice on the macro level, on the level of systems and nations, and also the micro level, on the level of individuals and people, right? And that prayer is a kind of exorcism, right? It is a kind of saying, God, push out the evil. We say it every single Sunday. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, forgive us. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, right? And the Hebrew, on the Greek, rather, it says the evil one. It doesn't say evil, it says the evil one. I don't know why we say evil, by the way. Anyway, okay. Um, what was I thinking? All right. Um, uh, I'm just gonna just gonna throw this up as a, as a concept because we have talked about this before. Okay, so this dual rebellion idea. I thought our authors did. A, I mean, our video did a great job of expressing the three dual rebellions in Genesis one through eleven. Right at the garden, um, before the flood, and at the Tower of Babel. Um, 
that's not the only place we get the idea of dual rebellion. So one of the most obvious is in Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Right? So Judas clearly has free will. Right? He's, he chooses to, to betray Christ. But in the Gospel of John, twice it tells us the devil put it in his heart to do it, and Satan entered him. Okay, so um, now again, Satan doesn't usually play on that little level, but you know, obviously, this is not a little level. It has to do with Jesus. Um, okay, uh, I don't have time to do this one. Um, so, on your own, if you've got your little notes, I encourage you to read Second Peter. Um, the little verses I gave you there and the Jude verses I gave you there. And, and then next time we'll talk about um, why those matter. Um, it talks a little bit about what the status of, of fallen angels is today. Okay, so that's on your own. Um, but I think this is an interesting question. I think it's worthwhile for us as we, as we look at our world today and we read, the, read or watch the news to think about where do we see evidence of dual rebellions? Right? What are these things that are happening in our world that are not just bad people? Right? but that are more complicated than that, that are probably bad people or bad Elohim working with people making bad choices. Um, that's a really important question because it completely changes how we think about other people and other systems and other nations and all of that stuff. Right? Um, do I have the... T uh, okay, yeah. So um, ignoring the spiritual evil in our world can result in falsely blaming humans for all the world's suffering. Um, in other words, I can say, boy, it's just, you know, um, it's just Hitler's fault, right? Well, not just Hitler's fault. I mean, Hitler was at fault, but not just Hitler's fault. Um, or I can say, boy, I got on a big argument with this guy at work and he's just a jerk. He's just a horrible person. He's mean to everybody. He's mean to his wife. He's mean to his kids. He's mean to his boss. He's mean to me. Okay, yeah, but that's not all that's going on in that guy's life necessarily. Right? Um, and at some point, I need to see people not just as enemies, um, but as willing or unwilling victims, right? So Jesus sees us that way. Jesus doesn't look at us and say, those disgusting rebels, they're horrible people and I hate them. He looks at us and he says, those poor people who were tempted into sin have fallen into temptation. I know what that's like because I've been tempted in every way, but I haven't sinned, but I understand and I want to rescue them, right? Not that I don't think their sins are significant, but I want to rescue them because I know part of the big problem here is that they are being tempted by these spiritual beings. It's not just their fault, okay? Um, oh, and also, when we ignore spiritual evil in our world, it can result in a false individuals over systems worldview. What I mean by that is we can say, well, just the king of Babylon is a really bad guy. The king of Tyre is a really bad guy. Yeah, but that's not all we're being told. We're being told that behind Tyre and Babylon are spiritual forces um, that are orchestrating those imperial powers, right? Um, again, I can look at the world and say, you know, racism is not just a bad thing that happened that's going to get better because people change people's hearts. No, there is spiritual evil in the world that is creating bad systems. Like, uh, you know, in my lifetime, the Soviet Union, right, was the really terrifying evil empire. Um, and, you know, Stalin killed significantly more people than Hitler did, um, 20 million, something like that. That's not just Stalin being bad. Or, you know, there, is, there are evil forces creating evil systems that take more than just saying, hey, we're going to get Stalin to change his mind, right? We got to push back against that spiritual evil, the whole system. 
that kind of make sense? Okay. Um, this is important. Um, Jesus and all of the authors of the New Testament, all the apostles and all the apostles' disciples, assume that we think in these terms. Okay? So you're sitting there maybe thinking, boy, the last three weeks we've been talking about stuff that maybe I've never really thought about much before. Because the Bible never lays this out in a like point-by-point outline. Because they just assume that we already thought these ways. Okay? But understanding how the New Testament authors and the Old Testament authors thought about the world is really important to understand what Jesus did. So next week, we're going to talk about what Jesus did. And a lot of it has to do with defeating spiritual forces of evil. Okay, And I'm going to show you like 100,000 Bible verses that say that. Um, But if we don't get how they saw the world, how Jesus saw the world, we're not going to really understand what Jesus did. And then we're not going to really understand what Jesus wants us to do. Okay, so that's why all this stuff is so critical. Um, Okay. Um, How did Jesus defeat the spiritual rebels and how can we help? Join us next week to find out. Um, (laughs) We'll talk about exorcisms, I promise, and all that good stuff. Uh, I'm way over time, but thank you so much. Questions before we close? Any, Any? Yeah. Okay, I did. Thank you, Gene. So I, I was gonna, I was gonna mention this. I, I, I had forgotten. Thanks for remembering. Um, I think there's a difference. Not I think um, the, the church historically has thought there's a difference between fallen people and fallen Elohim. Okay, fallen people fell because we were tempted. Right, something outside of us led us to make these mistakes, and because of that, um, God is working redemption for us, right? He's trying to draw us back. Um, Like you might do with a child who made a mistake. But the Elohim are different. They're like adults. They weren't tempted. They they were literally in God's presence and chose to walk away from it. So because they're not tempted, um, because they're like adults, not like children, there's no forgiveness for them. Okay, so never in scripture does it ever suggest that Satan or any of the demons can be redeemed. Now, maybe they can be, and it's like a thing the Bible doesn't talk about, um, but, but the church has traditionally read that there's no forgiveness or redemption for Elohim who fall. Okay, there's forgiveness for all humans who fall, because we're like kids, we didn't really get it. We still don't really get it, right? We still can't really see God until we get to heaven. We see glimpses of God on earth. So we can be forgiven. They can't be. Huge difference. Okay, great. Shirley. So, yeah, so Shirley's question is, um, uh, why doesn't the church talk more about spiritual evil and these topics? Why do they kind of back away from it and hide from it? That's a really good question. Um, I would say maybe three quick answers. The first is, um, we didn't grow up in the Jewish worldview, and we didn't grow up thinking in these terms, right? 
And there's a point in the early history of the church where there's like a tipping, right? Where it goes from primarily Jewish Christians to primarily non-Jewish Christians. And you lose, you know, what you lose is this, the, the zeitgeist of the faith, right? People who've grown up since they were children and their kids and their parents and their parents and their parents all lived and breathed the Hebrew scriptures. All of a sudden you got people that are new Christians as adults who never read the Hebrew scriptures at all, right? So we began to lose some of that Hebrew worldview. I think that's part of it. Um, I think part of it in our modern culture is that we are so materialistic that this stuff sounds super weird to us. And I think the church, understandably or, or maybe ununderstandably, intentionally shifted and started talking more about material things. Um, and I, I think the, um, th th this stuff is kind of hard to wrap your head around. And so, because we're talking about things we can't see. And so sometimes it's just easier to talk about stuff that we can wrap our head around. But I will say, um, though we don't use this language, you know, prayer is the ultimate spiritual warfare, right? I mean, prayer is asking God to come in. So every time we talk about prayer and revival starting with prayer, we're really saying, right, you're asking God's spirit to come live and dwell in us and push every other spirit out. Um, yeah, that's huge. Terry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's great. So the Terry's point is that this is a this can be a scary topic, um, especially if you have you know they they always say um, a little bit of knowledge can be worse than no knowledge at all, right? So if you have a little bit of knowledge and it results in you just being terrified of the boogeyman all the time and thinking you know zombies and vampires and mummies are going to get you. Um, then it's probably worse off than knowing nothing. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's, that's really a good point. And, and I think part of our answer here is to be able to say, you know, this absolutely Satan has worked to, to drive people with fear away from God, but it doesn't, it's not Hollywood stuff, right? It's, it's very different. Yeah. Mike. Place in the world getting next to God, mostly outside of Christian circles, mm -hmm. and safety. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So the, Mike's, Mike's point was just the closer you are to God, the further you are from Satan. 100% correct. And um, all the stuff that Jesus has always asked you to do, right? I mean, pray and love your neighbor and read your Bible and worship Jesus and try to be like Jesus is all the stuff you need to do for spiritual warfare too, right? And that's, that's all it takes. Um, maybe we're understanding the world differently, but we're still interacting with it in a, in a fairly similar way. Uh, Joe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So the, the comment is, you know, why is there so little emphasis placed on life in our world today? You can watch the news and hear who else has been shot and killed and bombed and whatever. And we just, it's almost like, well, it's another day. Um, yeah, I, I think you see the, the effect of the spiritual forces of evil in our world, right? Who have deadened us to the things that are opposed to God and made us more interested in the things that are opposed. I'm sorry. They've deadened us to the things of God and made us more interested in the things opposed from God. I mean, I, I really think that we overemphasize how bad Hollywood is, but just as an example, right? Think about, or in just the movie industry in general, violent movies. I saw a movie um, a couple weeks ago because I hadn't seen a movie in like a year and a half. And I was like, I'm going to see something in a theater. I don't care what it is. So I went and I saw a movie called The Wrath of Man. Um, and it was very, 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 very violent, right? And, and at some point I thought, when did this become entertainment, right? When did it become fun? I mean, you know, I'm, uh, to relax, I'm going to go watch this guy kill all these guys. And it's okay because they're bad guys, right? Um, and yeah, it became fun because Satan convinced me it was fun, right? Because the, the, he convinced me that life and the things of God are not that interesting, but boy, all this bad stuff is really great. Um, so we see that everywhere. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 The, the comment is that you only hear bad things in the news. If it bleeds, it leads. Right. So yeah, we 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 get that. I mean, un, unfortunately, you know, those are, are money-making businesses and they're gonna try to make their money with bad news because it sells better. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, and, and sometimes, I, I don't want to throw the newspaper under the bus. They do really good things too. But, but the reality is that everybody and every system can be used for or against God, right? Um, and so our job as believers is to say, you know, in what direction is this system being used? And can I pray in a different way? Can I, can, you know, we'll talk about how, how we can be involved. Okay. Hey, this is great stuff. Let me close this in prayer and then I'll stick around if you have more questions for me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise um, for your good world. We give you um, thanks and praise uh, that every time the enemy has tried to corrupt what you've made, you have, um, you have pushed back with light and with life and with goodness. Um, we thank you, Lord, that the way that you fight isn't the way we want to fight or the way the enemy wants to fight. And we thank you, Lord, that you have a role for us in this spiritual conflict. So we pray, Lord, this week, as we reflect on the world around us and those things that are broken, you would give us a heart uh, for the lost and a heart for the sick and a heart for the oppressed and a heart for the victim. And Lord, you would show us, begin to show us how we can roll back evil and advance the kingdom of God. This we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.